Hello everyone. Welcome back to The Layman's Historian, episode 25, Gridlock. Last time, we saw how the Roman consul Regulus, sensing that Carthage was on the ropes, offered the Carthaginian Senate incredibly harsh terms to end the war. Conscious of the dishonor and disgrace associated with reducing what was once the Queen of the Mediterranean to a mere vassal state of Rome, the Carthaginian leaders heroically voted to completely reject the offensive peace terms. Even so, all seemed lost until a newly arrived Spartan mercenary named Xanthippus came up with the idea to revamp the training and tactics of the Carthaginian army to play to their strengths. Under his strict Spartan regime, the Carthaginian citizen soldiers were revitalized to once again test their strength against the Roman legions. At the Battle of Tunis, Xanthippus won a resounding victory by utilizing his new troops and Carthage's host of war elephants. After coming so close to total victory, now it was the Romans' turn to retreat crushed and defeated to the coast. In all, only 2,000 men out of Regulus's 15,500-strong expeditionary force managed to escape back to Rome. Today, we will see how the fortunes of each side continued to oscillate back and forth, leaving the war's ultimate outcome hanging in the balance. But first, we must touch on an intriguing tale from history. When they landed in Rome, the survivors of Regulus's expedition brought not only first-hand accounts of the disastrous North African invasion, but also a surprising story regarding their vicious encounter with a deadly dragon along the Bagratus River in North Africa. When Regulus and his men had marched from Cap Bon into the interior, they had to cross the Bagratus River, now known as the Medherda River. Here, according to our earliest source, Quintus Aelius Tubero, they encountered a beast of almost mythical proportions. Tubero states that the consul Attilius Regulus, when encamped at the Bagratus River in Africa, fought a stubborn and fierce battle with a single serpent of extraordinary size, which had its lair in that region. In a mighty struggle with the entire army, the reptile was attacked for a long time with hurling engines and catapults, and when it was finally killed, its skin, 120 feet long, was sent to Rome. A more elaborate account is given by the 1st century AD writer, Valerius Maximus. Regulus, chosen by lot for the Carthaginian War, marched with his army to a point not far from the Bagratus River, and there pitched his camp. In that place, a reptile of astonishing size devoured many of the soldiers as they went down to the river to get water. Regulus set out with his army to attack the reptile. Neither the javelins they hurled nor the darts they rained upon its back had any effect. These glided off its horrible scaly fins as if from a slanting testudo of shields, and were in some miraculous fashion turned away from its body so that the creature suffered no injury. Finally, when Regulus saw that it was killing a great number of his soldiers with its bites, was trampling them down by its charge, 
and driving them mad by its poisonous breath, he ordered Ballista to be brought up. A stone taken from a wall was hurled by a Ballista. This struck the spine of the serpent and caused its entire body to become numb. After the serpent had been paralyzed, the Romans quickly dispatched the creature, and Regulus ordered his men to skin the vanquished beast and send its hide as a trophy back to Rome. Although it is tempting to dismiss this bizarre episode as a work of pure fantasy, several other Roman historians assert that the body of a large reptile was sent back to Rome during Regulus's invasion in the First Punic War. Furthermore, as we remember from Episode 9, when the Greek general Ophelus marched from Cyrene along the North African coast to join up with Agathocles, he lost many of his men to venomous snakes, supporting the idea that dangerous snakes did indeed inhabit the region. Still other ancient sources report that massive serpents had been sighted in other regions which were capable of killing humans. What did Regulus and his men encounter along the Bagratus, and what was hung up on display in Rome? A massive python? A primordial serpent? A dragon? Who can say? But the story remains as one of the most fascinating anecdotes of the First Punic War. With the Bagratus dragon out of the way, we return to the narrative. Monsters aside, the Romans now found themselves in a difficult position with a reinvigorated Carthage shipping out new galleys on a regular basis to contest the sea once again. Rome's generals in Sicily, wary of repeating Regulus's catastrophic mistake, kept to the hills and refused to fight open battles against the exultant Carthaginians out of fear of their elephants. Instead, the Romans preferred to continue to slog out the war in besieging the numerous fortified cities on the island. Still, things were not all bad for Rome. Although the Romans had suffered a serious setback, Regulus's invasion of North Africa had been a heavy blow to the Carthaginians. The Romans had burned the most prized farmlands and orchards as they ravaged the coast, leaving the local economy in shambles. This was not helped by the fact that marauding Roman fleets meant that overseas trade, the main source of Carthage's wealth, was stifled at the same time, putting further strains on Carthage's finances. Besides these financial troubles, the native Libyan and Numidian tribes continued to raid the countryside during the fallout ensuing from the Roman evacuation. The Carthaginians desperately needed to regain internal security and stability if they could ever hope to continue the war. And so they appointed Hamilcar, the same general from Ignomus and Tunis, as governor of the African territories tasked with bringing order to the turbulent country. Later, Hamilcar would be succeeded by Hanno the Great, the second and most notorious Carthaginian to hold that name. Hanno represented the interests of the great landowning nobles of Africa, and he believed that Carthage should focus on developing her rich African territories and write off the war with Rome. In order to further his ends, 
Hanno the Great discouraged any overseas activity against the Romans in Sicily or on the sea, preferring to divert resources to conquering the North African tribes. We'll keep an eye on Hanno the Great, since he will play a pivotal role in the coming years of Carthage's history. Despite the galvanizing effect of the victory at Tunis, Carthage's revamped expeditions were not graced with the same meteoric success. Perhaps without the charismatic Spartan Xanthippus at the helm, the Carthaginian military felt leaderless. Perhaps it was just bad luck. Regardless, the newly Christian Carthaginian fleet of 200 quinquiremes was trounced by the Roman fleet of 350 ships sent to retrieve the 2,000 survivors of Regulus's expedition. Of Carthage's 200 ships, 114 were captured with their crews. The Romans did not enjoy their triumph long, however, for on their route back the commanders foolishly disregarded their pilots' advice to take shelter in the ports. They sailed along the outer coast of Sicily, despite the fact it was July, the stormy season, thinking they would scare a few of the coastal cities into joining the Roman alliance by this show of force. Instead, the entire fleet of 364 ships was engulfed in a vicious storm in which, according to Polybius, the ships either foundered or were smashed by the breakers against the submerged rocks and headlands until the beaches were covered with corpses and wrecks. No record have survived of a greater single catastrophe at sea. Of the 364 ships of this proud armada, only 80 managed to scrape by to safety. Some estimates place the Roman casualty count in this disaster at over 100,000 men. With the Roman navy seemingly crippled at one stroke, the Carthaginians again took heart and refitted their own fleet of 200 ships for the war. With these, they dispatched Hasdrubal, one of the three Carthaginian generals who had been present at the Battle of Tunis, to Sicily with a force of mercenaries and 140 war elephants. Landing in Lilibaeum, Hasdrubal set about training his men in preparation for an all-out offensive against the Romans. In spite of Hasdrubal's arrival with reinforcements, in 254 BC, the Romans, under Scipio the Donkey, who had somehow regained enough popularity to be elected again to supreme command, managed to take the Carthaginian stronghold of Panormus, modern-day Palermo. Besides the strategic importance of this conquest, the capture of Panormus served a significant propaganda value due to the fact that it was one of the few cities in Sicily that had a majority of Carthaginians in its population, making its loss a severe blow to Carthage's prestige. Still, it is doubtful whether even this success allowed Scipio to shake off his hated nickname. The loss of Panormus was somewhat compensated by the recapture of Acragus, but the Carthaginians quickly realized that they could not afford to hold the city and decided to burn it to the ground, raising the walls and demolishing the homes while the Greek citizens cowered in their temple sanctuaries. Carthage's greatest ally, however, turned out to be the weather. 
while returning from a raiding expedition, Rome's second war fleet, which had narrowly escaped becoming stranded in the shoals off the coast of North Africa due to the admiral's incompetence, was virtually destroyed in another tremendous storm. 150 ships were lost in this debacle. Polybius states that, At this, even the Romans, for all their constant and exceptional determination, were forced by circumstances, by the sheer scale and number of disasters they had experienced, to abandon their shipbuilding program. Having lost 434 ships over the past two years, it is hard to comprehend the magnitude of the financial toll these disasters took on the Romans. For instance, in the 4th century BC, it cost Athens approximately two talents of silver to outfit one trireme, the venerable forebear of the quinquereme, which would not include the cost of paying the crew, estimated to be a talent per month, and the expense of maintaining and repairing a ship damaged in storms or battle. Considering that the quinquereme was substantially larger than the trireme, and thus required a larger crew, it is safe to say that it was substantially more expensive to maintain a fleet of quinquereens in a seaworthy condition. Rome's naval losses in these two storms was the equivalent of a multi-billion dollar catastrophe in equipment and manpower lost. To have all this time, labor, and expense sent to the bottom of the sea after accomplishing virtually nothing was enough to drive the Romans to retire from the sea for a season, leaving Carthage in control once more. With their enthusiasm at an all-time low, the Roman land forces sheltered in the hills and watched Hasdrubal parade his elephants across Sicily, unopposed. The memory of the carnage of Tunis remained fresh in the Roman minds, and for two years, None dared to challenge these terrifying war beasts. Supremely confident that he could repeat Xanthippus' feats, Hasdrubal devastated the country around Panormus, while the Romans reluctantly watched from the battlements of the city. However, the consul, Lucius Caecilius Metellus, perceived the Carthaginian overconfidence as an opportunity, and he devised a plan to lure Hasdrubal into fighting a battle on his own terms. Waiting until the Carthaginians had ravaged the land up to the city walls, Metellus sent out his lightly armed skirmishers to harass the raiding parties with slings and javelins. The Carthaginians had already crossed the river which surrounded the city, and rather than make a difficult retreat under fire, they decided to close ranks to protect themselves against the missile troops. The elephant drivers, eager to be the sole cause of victory and thus win praise from Hasdrubal, urged their beasts to run down the Roman skirmishers. The Romans retreated to the moat just outside the city walls, where Metellus had ordered them to take shelter if charged. When the elephants came within range of the city walls, the Roman troops and citizens on the battlements began to rain javelins and spears down on the beleaguered war beasts. When they saw this, the light troops leapt out of the moat and added their own volleys against the attackers. And soon the elephants, pierced by countless missiles and maddened by pain, 
began to stampede, turning on their own men who were coming up behind them. Seeing the enemy thrown into confusion, Metellus led his heavy legionaries out through the city gates and fell upon the Carthaginians, completing the rout. Twenty to thirty thousand Carthaginians lost their lives in this encounter, and a large number of elephants were captured by the Romans. Later, when the Romans awarded Metellus a triumph for his victory at the Battle of Panormus, these elephants would form the centerpiece of his celebratory procession. By contrast, Hasdrubal suffered a grim fate for his role in this debacle. Although he vigorously defended himself and offered various excuses for the disaster, including asserting that the army's Celtic mercenaries were drunk at the time of the attack, the Council of 104 remained unimpressed, and Hasdrubal was crucified for his failures in Sicily. Now only two strongholds remained to Carthage within Sicily, Lilibaeum and Drapana. In 250 BC, with the Carthaginians in disarray after the Battle of Panormus, the Romans proceeded to blockade Lilibaeum by land and by sea in the hopes that, once it fell, they would have a secure launching point for another invasion into North Africa. The Carthaginians, knowing the importance of holding their strongest fortress on the island, mobilized all forces to support the beleaguered city and its heroic commander, Himoko. Polybius gives us a vivid description of the progress of the siege. The Romans encamped on both sides of the city and ran a trench, a palisade, and a wall between the two camps. They began by bringing siege works to bear against the tower closest to the sea, on the side of the city that faces the Libyan Sea. By constantly adding to the structures they had already erected, and by increasing the extent of their work, they eventually undermined the six towers next to this one, and then set about all the others simultaneously with battering rams. The fury of the siege was terrifying with towers being damaged or demolished every day, and with the siege works advancing all the time further and further inside the city. The inhabitants were gripped by despair and terror, despite the presence in the city of about 10,000 mercenaries, even apart from the citizen population. But Himoko, the commander of the mercenaries, was tireless in his efforts. The walls and mines he constructed to counter their works made things extremely difficult for the Romans, and every day he also launched an attack on the siege works in an attempt to burn them. At any time of the day or night, the siege works might become the site of desperate fighting, and sometimes there were more casualties in these encounters than there usually are in pitched battles. In addition to the Romans literally battering at the gates, Himoko also had to face down other, more dangerous elements within his own walls. At one point in the siege, the high-ranking officers of the mercenaries agreed among themselves to betray the city to the Romans and even secretly slipped out to the Roman camp to meet with the consul to arrange the betrayal. However, a Greek captain named Alexon of Achaea warned Himoko of the intended treachery before the disloyal officers could return. 
the Carthaginian acted swiftly. Summoning the remaining mercenary officers, Himilco convinced them, with a mixture of pleas and generous promises, to remain loyal to him and to honor their contracts. These loyalist officers then convened a general assembly of all the common soldiers, assuring them that if they stayed with the Carthaginians, each man would receive a hefty bonus in addition to his regular pay, an offer which easily won the soldiers over. When the treacherous officers tried to address the men along the city walls, they were pelted by stones and missiles and forced to return to the Roman camp empty-handed. While Himoko kept up a vigorous defense within the city, the Carthaginians assembled a task force to keep Lilibaeum well supplied during the siege. In a series of daring relief expeditions, the Carthaginians threw 10,000 more troops and a huge amount of food into the city. The Roman fleet, newly rebuilt once again, stood by dumbfounded since their inexperienced captains and crews could not hope to keep pace with the seasoned Carthaginians. Bolstered by these reinforcements, Himilco's raids on the Roman siege engines became more frequent and daring. Polybius reports that Himilco kept the men's morale high by offering extravagant prizes for individual acts of bravery and by giving rousing speeches which maintained a frenzied enthusiasm among the garrison. At Lilibaeum, we catch a glimpse of the vaunted Carthaginian naval prowess, which had been conspicuously absent during most of the past 14 years of war. As we have seen in the past few episodes, despite its fearsome reputation, the Carthaginian navy had suffered chronic setbacks and consistently underperformed in nearly all of its encounters with the Romans. However, at Lilibaeum, the Carthaginian captains navigated the dangerous shoals and shallows which surrounded the city harbor with such skill and dexterity that the Romans were powerless to interfere. Among these captains, none exhibited more daring or panache than Hannibal the Rhodian. An eminent Carthaginian navigator who owned his own custom-built ship, Hannibal was tasked with carrying messages back and forth between Himilco and the Carthaginian Senate. The Romans, tired of seeing Carthaginian blockade runners continually slip past their watch, had taken to anchoring just off the mouth of the harbor to hinder the relief boats. Undeterred, Hannibal outfitted his ship and by a combination of speed and skillful maneuvering, sailed triumphantly past the Romans in full sight of their entire fleet to the cheers of the populace. Furious at this blatant proof of his own fleet's impotence, the Roman commander put ten ships across the entrance to the harbor and kept his entire fleet waiting in the wings to sweep down on the Rhodian when he re-emerged from the city. Hannibal thought little of these Roman efforts, though, and proceeded to sail boldly out of the harbor after making public the time of his departure. The Rhodian's speedy ship and expert crew once again allowed him to dodge the Romans at the harbor mouth and then outdistance all pursuers. In a moment of reckless bravado, Hannibal even halted his ship 
and offered to give battle to the foremost of the Roman vessels, an offer they rather shamefacedly refused. With a triumphant flourish, Hannibal resumed course for Carthage, having outwitted the entire Roman fleet with a single vessel. The Rhodians' exploits inspired other Carthaginian captains to emulate him, and Hannibal himself returned several times to supply the city with news and one-up his own achievement. The Romans became so frustrated by these fearless mariners that they tried to fill in the entire harbor mouth with rubble, but the depth of the water and the strength of the current defeated their efforts, leaving them with only one small sandbank to show for all their work. Fortune, however, would smile on their endeavors in a strange way. One night, a Carthaginian quadrine ran aground on this same sandbar and fell into Roman hands. Seeing that this ship was particularly well made and speedy, the Romans outfitted it with a picked crew and sent it out to hunt down the blockade runners, but especially Hannibal the Rhodian. As it so happened, the very next day Hannibal set out in broad daylight to carry a message back to Carthage. As he sailed through the dangerous shallows, he suddenly noticed the quadrine lying in wait. Recognizing the ship immediately as one of the fastest Carthage had available, he quickly ordered his sailors to turn his own ship about and flee for the harbor. Unfortunately, the repurposed Roman vessel was too close when the pursuit began, and Hannibal was forced to reluctantly turn and engage his pursuer. A fierce struggle ensued, but for all his bravery, the Rhodian was unable to repel the numerous Roman marines, and he and his vessel were captured by the exultant Romans. After refitting the Rhodian ship with their own men, the Roman sailors quickly put an end to the effrontery of the Carthaginian blockade runners. Despite the fall of the Rhodian, morale remained high within Lilibaeum. In a renewed offensive against the Roman siege works, the Carthaginian garrison finally managed to set fire to the Roman engines and with the aid of a strong wind, destroyed them. When news of this disaster reached Rome, the Romans immediately outfitted another expedition to reinforce their army in Sicily. In 249 BC, the Roman consul in command of this newly raised force, Publius Claudius Pulcher, who has been described by ancient historians variously as mentally unstable, arrogant, and a drunkard, decided that enough was enough. His brother, Appius Claudius Codex, had been one of the first instigators of the First Punic War when he led the Roman troops to aid the Mamertines way back in 264 BC. Now, Claudius believed that what his brother had started, he would finish. Leading the Roman war fleet to Drapana, the only other remaining Carthaginian stronghold in Sicily besides Lilibaeum, Claudius performed the ceremonious duty of observing the feeding of the sacred chickens on board to foretell the portents of the coming battle. If the chickens ate their feed, then the gods would favor the Romans in the coming struggle. But on the day in question, the chickens refused to eat at all, 
confronted with this terrible omen and watching the morale of his troops plummet, Claudius impulsively grasped the chickens by the neck and slung them overboard with the pithy remark, Let them drink, since they don't wish to eat. Meanwhile, in Drapana, the Carthaginian commander Adderbal decided to risk a battle at sea rather than endure the uncertainty of a siege. Calling his men together, he gave a short speech explaining his reasons for sailing against the Romans and why battle was preferable than waiting out a siege, and his men readily agreed with his plan. Embarking from the port, Adderbal sailed boldly out to meet the oncoming Romans. Surprised by the sight of Carthaginian ships bearing down on them, and discouraged by their commander's recent sacrilege, the Romans were thrown into confusion. The foremost ships had already managed to enter the harbor, but Claudius now ordered that they were to turn about and sail back out into the sea. Several of the ships collided with their friends as they were trying to escape, snapping the oars and crippling the vessels. Those that managed to regain the open sea joined up with Claudius and arrayed themselves in battle order along the coast. The Carthaginians under Adderbal formed up in an orderly line with their backs to the open sea, pinning the Romans against the shore. In the ensuing battle, the Carthaginian ships, thanks to their superior speed and the skill of their crews, maneuvered around the Roman ships with ease, ramming them broadside or snapping banks of oars. Curiously enough, these Roman ships do not seem to have been equipped with the famous Corvus boarding bridge. In fact, this device seems to have disappeared from history altogether following the Battle of Cape Ignomus. Why the Romans dropped off using the Corvus remains a mystery, especially considering how effective it was in battle. But the fact that Polybius makes no mention of it after Ignomus seems to indicate that it had fallen out of favor for one reason or another. Bereft of their equalizing weapon, the inexperience of the Roman crews and the poor make of their vessels began to show. The Carthaginians drove many of the Roman ships aground in the shallows, or even forced them to beach on the shore. The Carthaginians captured 93 ships along with their crews, while Claudius escaped with 30 ships, all that remained of Rome's latest war fleet. Slinking back to Rome, he was tried on charges of incompetence and sacrilege, but managed to limit his punishment to only a heavy fine. He died shortly thereafter, possibly due to suicide. His name lived on in infamy, however. There is even a story that his sister was later punished when, hemmed in by the commoners on the busy city streets, she publicly declared she hoped her brother would lose another battle and thus clear the streets of rabble. The war was now in its fifteenth year. In both Rome and Carthage, enthusiasm for fighting was rapidly on the wane. Both sides had suffered tremendous and often horrific defeats. Both were financially exhausted by the constant strain of having to support massive armies and outfit expensive fleets. And both could see no end. In sight. In Rome, the Fabii came to power, 
a family that was traditionally devoted to expanding northwards into Etruria rather than southwards into Sicily. Over the next few years, the Romans turned their attention elsewhere and contented themselves with continuing the blockade of Lilibaeum and harassing Carthaginian traders and merchantmen. In Carthage, the treasury was nearly empty due to the constant drain of the war. The overseas trade routes had been disrupted for the past 15 years. The farmlands had yet to recover from the devastation of Regulus's invasion, and the Libyan villages and Phoenician cities were proving ever more reluctant to pay the heavy tribute Carthage levied on them. At one point, Carthage was reduced to having to request a loan of 2,000 talents from Ptolemy II Philadelphus, pharaoh of Ptolemaic Egypt, who politely declined to intervene. Like two punch-drunk boxers, both Rome and Carthage reeled from constant war. Peace should have been concluded relatively easily, but neither side could agree to terms, so the conflict dragged on. With the two states in gridlock, one bright spark would relieve the tedium of the military stalemate. Next time, we will see how one charismatic general, father to one of the greatest commanders history would ever see, would single-handedly attempt to hold back the Roman tide and save Carthaginian Sicily. If you've enjoyed this episode, consider subscribing to the show and following me on Facebook and Twitter to keep up with the latest content. Also, if you get a chance, make sure to check out the Layman's Historian website at www.thelaymanshistorian.wordpress.com for informative maps and pictures regarding the events discussed during the show. Until next time, take care and read more history. Music